to IEP Radio, a show dedicated to the education of all things indoor environmental quality related. And now here's your host, Michael Schrantz. Welcome to IEP Radio. This is episode 20. Today we're going to be talking with Dr. Robert Brandis and his partner, Gail Brandis, on a book that they wrote uh, now in its fifth edition called Post-Remediation Testing and Verification for Mold and Bacteria. It's a wonderful book. We, we covered it just a little bit uh, on episode 15 when we were talking about clearance testing for mold remediation projects. But I have been really wanting to speak with these two for a long time. And given the current climate and pandemic of COVID that we're dealing with, um, we're going to actually mix a lot of the, that current situation into this book and really how this uh, book is really valuable for a lot of the IEPs and even remediation companies in the industry. To give you a little bit of background, um, Gail Brandis uh, is the president of Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services in Las Vegas, Nevada. Uh, Gail has a master's degree in the industry safety management from Northern Illinois University and a Bachelor of Science in Secondary Science Education from the University of Delaware. She is a retired certified safety professional, certified indoor environmental consultant, and an Illinois licensed asbestos, lead, and radon professional. She has been involved in safety and health consulting for industries and institutions for over 30 years. She is responsible for developing safety and environmental programs and conducting training sessions for client companies in both English and Spanish on a wide variety of topics. She taught EPA-accredited asbestos training classes at Chicago area colleges, universities, and private institutions for over 25 years. Um, Dr. Robert Brandis, uh, her partner, uh, also works for uh, the Occupational and Environmental Health Consulting Services in Las Vegas. Uh, Dr. Bob, as we call him, has a PhD in Environmental Safety and Health, a Master's in Public Health, and a dual undergraduate degree in Thermomechanical Engineering and Environmental Engineering. He is a registered professional engineer in Nevada and Illinois. He held the credentials of Certified Industrial Hygienist, Certified Safety Professional, and others for many decades prior to his retirement in 2013. He has over 40 years of experience in containment or contaminant control in clean rooms, drug manufacturing, moldy buildings, asbestos abatement, and residential radon. For the past five years, he has been working with the uh, National Institute of Health researching the effectiveness of HEPA-filtered equipment in the hazardous material remediation industry. He has authored numerous publications on chemical safety and microbial control for hospital and healthcare manufacturing sectors, as well as the mold consulting and remedial industries. Between him and his partner, Gail, uh, their latest books are Infield Test Methods and Reference Standards for Portable High Efficiency Air Filtration Equipment, uh, Worldwide Exposure Standards for Mold and Bacteria, now in its 10th edition. The book we'll be talking about today, Post-Remediation Verification and Clearance Testing of Mold and Bacteria Remediation Projects, and now in its fifth edition, global occupational exposure standards for over 6,000 chemicals, and the international indoor air quality standards for over 2,000 chemicals and biological materials. We could go on and on with the accolades with these two. They are a powerhouse of information and passion doing the job the right way through the science and reasonable practical approach that we need to do in our field on a regular basis. Well, everybody, you know, it's, it's an interesting time. Um, uh, we originally were going to talk about uh, Dr. Bob and Gail's uh, book on post-remediation verification 
But given the current times and the pandemic that we're dealing with, um, we obviously are going to be talking a little bit about that, probably a lot of bit about that, and also how appropriate this um, PRV book that they've, they've created actually is. Um, we are an industry uh, that are hired to decontaminate buildings. It doesn't matter whether we're decontaminating mold, fire, smoke, water damage, uh, general cleanup, dead bodies, trauma scene, that sort of thing. We are charged with doing uh, a job, which is cleaning. One of the questions, and there are many, um, that has been posed is, what's adequate? Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. People saying, do this, do that for testing, for cleaning. But really, how do we know its effectiveness? Because somebody told us it. Is there any testing being done? Is that testing appropriate for the question being posed in the first place? It's a, it's a really challenging question, uh, and there's more to come. And to help me with this uh, discussion, I'd like to uh, introduce uh, my two special guests uh, to the show. Welcome, Dr. Bob and Gail. Uh, thank you, Mike. Good morning. Good to be here this morning. Yeah, considering. It really is uh, probably the most perfect time to be talking about this. Right. Um, you know, we've we've had other instances of of uh, infectious organisms going around, but uh, nothing as virulent as this. So, I would hope that this would be the time where it really hits home with people that hey, you really need to pay attention to this. You know, uh, I I think it's a little it, it's somewhat important to give uh, some history about this book and why it uh, why we wrote it. Um, and it goes back, what, 12 years, 10, 10 12 years now, uh, when, when the, uh, our industry was uh, starting to get into mold remediation, and there was a lot of disinformation, conflicts of interest, uh, um, people trying to steal business from everybody else, and it, it left a number of the highly motivated people to do it right without information. A lot of people were holding what they knew very close to their chest yep. without sharing that information. It admittedly just, sounds familiar. Yes, and that's just something that Bob and I decided as we approached our retirement age, we didn't want everything that we had learned and, and experienced to, to fall by the wayside. <coughs> we wanted to do what Bob calls a brain dump. Yeah. Well, that brain dump, I don't even think that adequately states the power of this book in front of us is amazing. And um, so keep going, guys. The history is relevant and how it was put together. So, um, you know, the question of adequate cleaning, how do you know if it's clean? And my background is in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry. And, and those are questions we answered a long time ago. The space industry had to answer them. And... I would hear people asking these questions and I'm going, well, just look it up. This is not something that's, that's uh, a new area. This has been something that's been well-researched for many, many years and the methods for validating it and testing it and, and standards and, and standards. And, you know, there, there clearly was a disconnect between people, I don't know, maybe representing is not the, the right word, but, people who, who profess to be a leader in our industry and what they were saying uh, and doing clearly was a conflict of interest. We had, uh, we were at once uh, 
a meeting about this and the supposed expert up there was uh, claiming that, uh, oh, you don't need to take samples or anything like that. And, you know, people go, okay, I guess this guy's the expert, we'll listen to him. And then after the meeting was over, I went up to him and I said, you and I both know that's a lie. When you go do a remediation job, you take hundreds, if not thousands of samples. What are you doing lying to these people? And his response was, well, when they screw up, I'll get more work. Wow. Yeah. And it's a wonder the public has a hard time trusting people or even justifying the expense to do it the right way, let alone the wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. So that's when we decided we and a few other folks that were like-minded, were going to put our heads together and put together this post-remediation book, which now is in its fifth edition. That's right. Um, I, I would argue that it's like an unsung, unsung hero story because, you know, this certainly isn't a Tom Cruise talk where millions of viewers and whatnot, but what you guys have done here, just on this one book alone, let alone all the other things that obviously we know of that you have done is so powerful because it takes, here's the problem. We're, we're in this age of now, yeah, I want something, I want it now. Of course, right. this COVID virus is going to remind us how, um, how maybe we need to hit the, pump the brakes a little bit and slow down. The point is, is that it, you're right. Uh, there, there's a number of examples we could give, but one is that even the people that mean to do right maybe got overwhelmed. And because you don't have, let's use the example, mold police to come in and stop that person at gunpoint to say, you, you're not following a statistically significant approach or, or right. you're misinterpreting, which is probably even more common, is saying th- commons that they're not even qualified to say, like, we tested your house, there's nothing here, you're safe. All of these things, there's no one to really govern that. And you guys took what I can't even imagine the amount of hours spent, <laughs> but amassed, even if, if you dive into these chapters, which are rich in information, probably my favorite book on the shelf. Um, it, 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 this is kind of like the IEP slash remediators Bible that they can go to, 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 to help them create a testing criteria and approach and even understand what PRV means. I mean, we go back to the simplicity. I love this paragraph in the beginning that you guys wrote. I'll kind of enlarge it here for the audience about it's, it's a process. Even I got stagnant to that thought year or to the opposite of this many years ago, kind of went in with that, that robot tunnel vision, not realizing that there's so much more than just the results. You, the results are a part of the picture. You have right. the, the visual observations and everything that goes with it. And so really a, a manuscript, uh, a Bible uh, to help people in the field try to get this right and probably very appropriate when we're taking a look even today at COVID virus and how to disinfect, how to maybe even test. Well, one of the things that we found is, is there's no one way that's perfect in all situations. Right. So we had to give people choices. And then also, it's kind of a win-win for everybody. If everybody knows from the beginning what is going to be expected of them at the end, what PRV testing is going to take place, then it's a more of an even playing field and people know how to bid the job, they know how to scope the job uh, and how to do the job, and then the PRV should go very, very you know, quickly and, and, and smoothly. So that was important for us. Yeah, the, the concept of, pro, of process or process control is, is not a new concept. This, again, comes from the, the medical device and drug industry as well as manufacturing industry that 
you you in all of those industries you do some testing but you can't do 100% testing it's cost prohibitive and 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 generally doesn't gain you that much but in all of these processes you design it so it's uh, everything is under control you get rid of the variables so process control even in in our industry is what makes sure that what we do gets done properly so yeah, it is a process and it is a process of controls and standard operating procedures and standard methods. And when you follow all of those, it gets the job done right. If you just go in there, like I see on TV now, where these guys have a uh, lawn sprayer full of, I assume is disinfectant and spraying buses and streets and whatever, uh, that's not process control. No, no, but it looks good and it sounds good. And um it's it's almost like our industry deserves, I don't mean this quite so literal, but we almost deserve what we're seeing in terms of the people that seemingly aren't using the science, the rationale, the independent studies to verify efficacy and or just not even beyond the killing part of it, the physical removal. Uh, that actually is a good segue. And I know it's a broad question, but could you talk to the audience a little bit about the lack of federal standards? I know that it's different for different organisms, but say mold and bacteria. I think a lot of the audience, general uh, patients, clients that we work with, are not are surprised to learn that there isn't some set standard for what's quote unquote acceptable in a home or a building. Could you guys elaborate on that a little bit? Um, well, it it, uh, it really depends uh, where you are. Um, if you're if you're dealing with the special int- interests of the real estate industry, then there are no regulatory standards uh, set by the United States. Globally, there are a whole bunch of standards, and that's all in our, in, uh, in our book one on mold and, and bacteria exposure standards. But if you move into hospitals or uh, drug manufacturing facilities or medical device facilities or, or satellite or clean rooms, or, yeah, there's lots and lots of standards. Why that? information didn't cross over to our industry um, just just befuddled me from day one. I, I remember being in a, a conference, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, and, and when they were just starting to talk about mold and bacteria, and the supposed professional up there went, well, there are no mold and bacteria standards. And I'm going, well, what are you talking about? There's a whole bunch of them. And, you know, this went on for years, and, and that was, is what motivated us to write the first book, is that, look, this is a bunch of, of, of uh, disinformation. I, the worst case was a, uh, a school district on the East Coast where a supposed certified industrial, hand, uh, industrial hygienist wrote a report about this, the schools and, and listed the... Uh, mold uh, exposure standard is 2,500 spores per cubic meter on what he called a generally accepted consensus standard and going, there isn't such a thing. This, this guy just made this up. Right. And, and, you know, you have these parents looking at this, you have this school district looking at this, and none of them, of course, know that this is fake, but, hey, it was signed off by a CIH. And, and I... I uh, I'm not necessarily critical of CIHs, but, um, and, and I am one, but there's a lot of them that the money becomes the most important thing to them. 
and the ethics and science kind of go out the window. Uh, and one of the things that occurred um, probably 15 years ago, um, initially for a certified industrial hygienist, there was a code of ethics. And one of those code of ethics required you to stay up to date on current knowledge on mold bacteria, chemical exposure standards work on a global basis. And AIHA and ABIH took that code of ethics out. And when I saw it happen, I go, whoa, something's definitely wrong here. We started to see a lot of changes in the organizations that we had depended on for decades prior to that. And if you look at the, the uh, PRV book, or if you look at the mold book that's put out by AIHA, they have a quarter of a page on PRV. Right. Here, our book is over 200 pages long. Right. Uh, and we also submitted our first book to a major national organization to see if they would be interested in publishing our worldwide exposure standards for mold and bacteria. And after they read it, they said, why do we care about standards from faraway countries? That was the best they can come up with, huh? Yeah. Well, and I think I think also not to interrupt you, Gail, but even terminology here gets in the way of confusion beyond any sort of more uh, nefarious reasons, uh, greed, that sort of thing. Um, it seems like you know when I okay when I think of standards in my mind, um, one of the words that oftentimes is not used in 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 in, in the same sentence is the word voluntary. Um, there, there's nothing. There's not someone's that's going to knock down the door and said you know, you pass this job when there was a guideline in the, from the U.S. or from Europe or wherever that, that said this is a good indication that this environment reflects, let's use the term normal fungal ecology. If you guys want to use another term, that's fine. But, oh, yeah. you, know, the, um, you know, the whole point is people understand it um, regardless of, of, of where or who generated it, it, it. What's normal for this environment, however you sample that and deem that. I think that's I think that's been a, another issue is I should correct myself from earlier. There are tons of guidelines and, and there are voluntary standards out there. You list them in your book, yeah. um, but you, you don't have anything that, say, for example, is enforced as much as if I can say I'm not saying it wouldn't in a legal court system, but um, say it at an HERA standard for schools, for asbestos. Right. It's right. that that's that's a whole other level of regulation. Um, and I think because we lack that sort of control and regulation. You have these people walking around sounding good. Their website looks pretty. Um, they got some cool looking equipment yep. and you're not even realizing that the true value of the work they're being done, but you don't even know that what they're employing in the environment could make things worse when we're talking about cleaning chemicals and that nature. So it's a complicated field for many people. It's no wonder so many are confused. This book keeps them on track. I love it. Yeah, we try and do that. What we, we found, you know, while going through this process is that you have to look at the, you know, what motivates people. And many people in the United States who feel that the government is there, but they're trying to protect you, feel if there's not a, a U.S. standard, then it's not an issue. Right. But as Bob said, you know, if we were to, to issue standards in the United States, then a lot of the slumlords out there would be in deep doo-doo because their buildings do not comply. And yeah. that's something that's not acceptable at certain levels in the government. But if you look at other <clears throat> countries in Europe, for example, that have socialized medicine, and every you know dollar that pays for somebody being sick comes out of the federal till, they want to keep people healthy. Right. So having standards, enforcing standards in those countries is a proactive approach. Yeah, yeah, that's not a proud moment for a US citizen. 
um, yeah. when you when you think of it that way. Yeah. So so I know we're going to be jumping around a little bit, and I hope you guys are okay with the nature of it. Um, COVID nineteen. I mean, um, obviously a hot topic right now. Um, wondering if you can kind of educate our audience a little bit about your knowledge and background on that particular. Uh, virus, um, maybe a little bit about exposure considerations, and I guess really the the pearl is uh, applying how this book could maybe be used high level to help folks that are out there in the field doing the cleanup and even the testing. Well, Bob has a master's degree in public health, so okay. he has a very good eye concept and has had just entire courses on pandemics. Sure. And when they first started to allow repatriate citizens from China to the United States, and they were using fever as the qualifying factor to quarantine those people. Right. Bob said, people can be asymptomatic, people can be pre-symptomatic, and they're letting them back in the country. Yeah. So from that moment, Bob knew that we were not taking the right course. Yeah. Yeah, I, this whole COVID-19 thing, um, at least in the United States, uh, couldn't have been played out worse. Um, standard... Uh, uh, infection control, viral control, science uh, was not followed, was not even discussed. And, you know, I could sit back and go, guess what? <laughs> it's, this, is, this is exactly what's going to happen. And, and we would tell our friends that. And sure enough, that's what happened. Um, I, I'm disappointed uh, at, at what is happening. Uh, but at the same time, um, we received a call from you and, and from a, a number of other organizations uh, looking for help. What should we be doing? How should we be doing it? Uh, and, and we've been working with them. Um, you know, why wasn't this talked about earlier? Um, I, I think part of it has to do with if you're not killing people, you're only making them sick. Some people feel that that's not an not all that important. Mm. But now we're dealing with something that clearly can kill not a few people, but a lot of people, and it's highly contagious. So now we got people asking, well, how do we really make sure that when we clean up an environment, it's actually clean? There it is. Um, Another issue too is that like with asbestos, the, the item you're cleaning up can do you harm. And same thing with the COVID, that, that if we don't, prepare and train and protect the workers doing the cleanup, they may fall victim as well, as well as their families. Yeah, sure. So I don't think people are willing to embrace a asbestos type containment control methodology for cleaning up COVID, but it is quite likely that that could be necessary. I hear you. Depending upon the circumstance, um, we, we have a, a number of people who, uh, we're called up to do a COVID decon, um, grocery store, office building, warehouse, or whatever. Um, and they, of course, asked how to do that because there isn't an off-the-shelf COVID test you can do for viral particles, um, which kind of ties our hands a little bit. But I reminded them, this is basically going back to how do you make sure that you clean a surface? Uh, and the simplest tool, there are other ones, but the simplest tool that we have used over the years is ATP. Uh, it's, a, it's a tool used in the pharmaceutical and the food industry and the drug industry. 
because it measures how well you clean a surface. You remove the biofilm and, and other biological materials from there, and then you know the surface is actually clean. And I'm, I'm somewhat surprised at the number of people who don't realize that when you apply a disinfectant to a surface, the way that disinfectant was validated under the standard EPA methods was putting the test organism on a clean surface and then applying the disinfectant. If you put that test organism on a dirty surface and then apply a disinfectant, the dirt deactivates the disinfectant and it doesn't work. That's not, not uh, what am I trying to say here? That's not uh, complex science. We've known that for 60, 70 years. And we have people in this industry who go, really, I need to clean it first? Well, who taught you how to clean? Uh, I, there, there really is some, some uh, lack of basic understanding of what cleaning means. And we were asked to do a uh, Legionella cleanup in a, in a bank. And as you know, banks can only be closed for a certain number of hours before they, they get into trouble. Um, yes, there, there's a federal law and banks have to be open. So, you know, there, there is not a, a quick Legionella test. Um, and you know we're under the gun to okay we got to get this this thing decontaminated we have to find the source of the contamination make sure we control that source so it doesn't happen again and then make sure we clean everything and it, it literally was a 24-hour operation over a 36-hour period and atp was the only thing we could use that would give us quick enough results to make sure that we had adequately cleaned and disinfected that environment. And the, the, there was one person in the, in the bank who had had legionellosis and everybody else in the building was freaked out, didn't want to come back. And it's nice to be able to say that the surfaces in the building would be clean enough to eat off of. Right. Yeah. And that was able to bring them back. Uh, and, you know, it, it uh, granted, it, it runs up the, the bill a little more, but, you know, We've had situations where we were deconning uh, environments for um, organ transplant people, uh, older people that were at high risk from their health condition. Um, and you want me to say that this environment is safe for them? I'm sorry, I gotta have proof that it's safe. That's just the way I am. Right. Um, and I don't hear that kind of stuff discussed in training courses where there are certain times where you you clearly have a risk scenario where you have to go beyond the ordinary just wet wipe and walk out and, and you're done and sport trap yeah um yeah sport traps are a whole different story well <laughs> so so what about going to your point about decontamination disinfection for covid because it is a relevant topic what do we know so far if it's a fair question of what appears to be working, we'll get into the test methods. I have a couple of questions to ask you about that, but what, do we have anything that's useful for those that are listening that may want to even clean their homes or you know, yes. buildings? Yeah. We, well, one of the things that I like to discuss with people is yes, there's a whole bunch of EPA approved disinfectants uh, and they're specifically tested against human coronavirus. But the majority of those disinfectants require a contact time of two minutes, five minutes, even up to 10 minutes. And the reality is if you're a cleaning company, you're not gonna get sit there and rub a cleaning chemical on a, on a table or a surface for 10 minutes, not gonna happen. Exactly. You get in there, you go ahead. 
So out of the 3,000 registered EPA disinfectants, I extracted this list of disinfectants that work within 30 uh, seconds to one minute. Right. Um, so yeah, these are, these are the biggies. And, and what I find somewhat interesting is bleach, of course, shows up in an awful lot of them. Right. Check the ingredients and, uh, right here. Yep. Yep. And uh, quaternary ammonium uh, in combination with IPA, uh, which is, you know, one thing attacks the virus membrane and then the other one kind of just rips it apart. Right. Um, and you'll see ethanol on here. So this kind of gives people a clue that you should be looking for a disinfectant uh, that's got bleach, uh, an alcohol or a quaternary ammonium compound in it. Those are the ones that work very, very quickly. Again, on clean surfaces. Right. So if you go into a facility and you're trying to, or you're supposed to be cleaning all the surfaces that people can touch or whatever, the first thing you do is not go in there and spray disinfectant. The first thing you do is you go in there and you clean it. Right. And that goes into a whole another story that, uh, we were asked to uh, look at a job of uh, cleaning up a, a bakery that had a fairly significant fire in there. And um, though the people who, who clean up fire and smoke, um, they have some, some uh, purported experts. And uh, the expert from, I won't say the other side, but he, he came there and I'm going, okay, here's your standard cleaning chemicals which one works best on greasy smoke fires? And his response was, I don't know. And I go, wait a minute, you have an industry that's existed for all these years, no one did a validation test of the standard four cleaning chemicals, which one works best on greasy fires? And they hadn't done that. <laughs> this is a gazillion years old, guys. So we, of course, did, did that research for that particular product project and share the information with that segment of the industry. But we have found in our careers that what we consider to be basic science and basic research for a particular industry, and in a lot of cases, simply doesn't exist. They just don't do it. And is that a lack of science background? Maybe. Um, it, was, it was like this whole issue with sport traps. <clears throat> uh, in, in my background, not only in this country, but in, in Europe and, and other countries uh, that I did consulting in, we always did comfortable plates because they have a history going all the way back to basically the 1850s. It's a well-established method. It's, it's uh, easy to count. And then they come up with this spore trap thing in this country. And, and I'm not, not saying spore traps don't have a purpose, but one of the, the weak points within this, the the spore trap technology, and I lose that using that term very loosely, is it has to be interpreted interpreted by a, a lab technician, and then they're out there competing on five dollars, ten dollars, and I go, no, that this is you can't do it that cheap and do it right. So we did a a round robin testing of spore trap um, interpretation of twenty eight different slides sent to all of the major labs. Seven labs. Seven labs. Yeah, well, seven major labs in the country. And basically none of the results agreed. Right. And the only thing they agreed on three quarters of the time 
was that there are some cladosporium spores, but 25% of them said there are not. And it's just like, whoa. This, the counts weren't even you know, anywhere close, and even the genera were well, different. Well, and let me see if I can tap. Uh, tack on top of that, these points is it's to, like you said earlier. I don't think that spore trap sampling um, are worth less. They may be worth less. Um, I, I, I'm a fan of qPCR sampling, but I think bigger than that. And I think again, your book does a great job is really narrating how a person should even approach a job. You shouldn't be blinded and, and kind of assume that your copy paste protocol is going to fit because the question then or questions that might be asked. Uh, are very um, and to the point about spore traps. We know that there's issues with trace count and when do they are they doing 25 percent or are they doing more? Right. And, and then it's an individual decision based off of maybe a single spore they found, right. which constitutes widening up the range, yada yada. But but I think I think where you know again just sharing experiences, I would be okay if someone did spore trap sampling as long as they explain the limitations of them uh, within reason. Uh, but but in a way that you know you guys cover uh, as well to say this is what this test can do, this is what it's not going to do. And a lot of times what we see people doing, and you are a proponent of it in, in certain situations, is to do different types of sampling. It's a combination right. of spore trap and, and culturing, uh, right. even surface sampling, because in a sedentary environment, gravity typically wins on things that you know, don't behave like uh, smoke in the air. Um, right. They're going to settle. And so th there's just that, that lack of understanding of physics. And, and I don't claim to be an expert at all. I know enough to be dangerous, but um, you have to know that each job is complicated. The layout of the home, where the area of concern is, where the ingress, egress routes, uh, what is the, are they concerned about? Are we, are we talking about testing to judge cleanliness or are we testing to help provide an issue of risk assessment? Uh, this is... Uh, reflects normal fungal ecology. And what I see is a, a clear lack of discussion with the clients, like yeah. by and large. And then the second foul I, I see, which I, I mentioned earlier, is the IEPs that are out there giving medical advice. They should not be giving medical advice unless they're a qualified clinician to do so. They can offer thoughts and perspectives and be neutral, but you're not supposed to be telling people that I deal with chronic people with chronic illness as my primary client. So the people that Gail mentioned earlier when you guys were having that discussion about you noticed that China was doing the screen and they were basing off a of fever and like Bob raised hands like what about the people that are asymptomatic? They symptomatic. They may have other things going on. It doesn't include fever. I deal with people, my primary client are people that have some form of chronic illness where the standard healthy individual as it were may go through their whole life not ever understanding that they were having an exposure and they may live what they think is a healthy life. Maybe one day when they're 80, they have a disease or a cancer and they'll never be able to tie it back to the moldy basement that they were living in for 20 years. But my point is, is that you, a lot of the sampling and the protocols that are being done typically aren't even directly being made on account of the questions that are being asked. They're being done because of greed and it's a quick in and out. And your book, uh, again, I, I'm not trying to shamelessly plug this thing, but uh, it, it does such a great job redirecting the focus on what's right for the industry, what's right for the clients. Yeah, we think that more testing actually can protect all the parties involved. One great example was a, uh, a basement, what they call a garden apartment in a building that was being finished up as apartments. And the, they had a mold uh, problem in the, in the basement floor. They had a flood. 
So the contractor came in, took out all the cabinetry um, and cleaned everything up. And we came in to do a PRV before they did the build back. And we did some, you know, sport traps. And one of the major Achilles heels with sport traps in my mind is the pen asp. Yeah. You get one number, pen asp. So they, they had a fairly high pen ASP with the, with the pre-abatement work that we did our, our testing. And then after the PRV came back, the uh, pen ASP was higher. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, we have the culturable testing results are going to come back in a few more days. Well, the homeowner got so upset. He called up the abatement contractor. He just tore him a new one. He said, I'm not going to pay you. You made it worse. And then when we got the, um, the culturable back, there was a particular species of penicillium different than what was present beforehand. Right. It had popped up because somebody had stuck a nail through a PVC pipe upstairs and started a new water intrusion that was coming in through his roof, his attic area. And that was what was causing the problem. And if we had not done the culturable testing, one, we wouldn't have found the second problem. And two, that poor remediation contractor that was doing a very good job would have been fired and not paid. So yeah. everybody won because we did the additional culturable testing. The, re- yeah, we- the remediation companies are standing up in applause for you right now, Gail. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we had to go through that place and we said, look, there clearly is something here. So we started ripping out the ceiling below the kitchen and the bathrooms and finally got to one bathroom, ripped it out, and then all this water fell on top of me. And I go, yeah, this is where your problem is. <laughs> I, yeah. uh, I, I, got a, I got a question real quick. I, I want to dig a couple more ch- uh, chapters into the book that I think are beneficial for the audience. But before I do that, I wanted to ask you guys a question. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on this. Um, my understanding about COVID-19 is, is it doesn't have any ATP, of course. And so you would be doing ATP testing as a surrogate, much like some of the gram, uh, uh, the, sorry, the, 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 the spore-forming bacteria that has been used as other surrogates to test for things that you otherwise can't commercially test for. Is that the idea right. behind the ATP uh, testing? You, if you're no, talking about no. a commercial building, for example, that the, someone just cleaned? The ATP testing basically measures uh, the effectiveness of your, cl- of your cleaning. And once you know that the surfaces are actually clean, then you can apply the disinfectants, which we show here. I see. So you you're talking about it. staging it. You do a, you're doing the, de- the debris cleaning first. Right. Then you do the ATP to see how clean is clean. And that's when we have this discussion then about the, the, the products that we're, we have in front of us. Right, exactly. Got it. Okay. So how does that narrative continue then? How do we test the efficacy after that? Well, this, at this point in time, we really don't have uh, a test available to do that. Um, at least not that's, widely, not, not, that, not that's widely accepted yet. I know there's a couple of labs that are working on some things, but you're right. There's nothing that's, you know, you go on Amazon, you buy yourself a COVID-19 kit, um, you know, to test for that sort of thing. Well, you, you had mentioned qPCR earlier, and um, that's recombinant DNA uh, replication and, and a test method. And that's what the, the uh, COVID-19 tests are. They're basically qPCR where you replicate the, the uh, virus uh, RNA and then you get it up to a high enough concentration where you can detect it. Right. And of course, there's a problem doing, with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. Could you be doing uh, nasal swabs on a surface? Sure you could. It's just that it's a little more important to deal with people right now. Right. Long term, uh, 
if one wanted to be able to validate that there is no viable um, COVID-19 uh, on a surface, um, yes, the technology exists to do that. It's just that it really isn't widely available at this point. Right. Yeah, we have indicators. I'm um, not to get into it right now because it's really under development, but looking at ways to test uh, again as a as 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 a, as a surrogate, uh, different sorts of um, viruses that that are not Corona or COVID, I should say, that have similar sim, similar morphology uh, enveloped that sort of thing uh, or have a membrane on them, um, and and how you can reduce them. And the other issue is the concept of maybe we can tailor into this is the concept of you're, you're trying to reduce the numbers by orders of magnitude by logs. You know, right. um, I think, don't get me wrong, I'd love to tell everybody that they can uh, go into a building and it'll be COVID-19 free. Viable or non-viable, let's just say total, it's just free. But I think realistically, the, the issue here with exposure is similar to kind of that NIOSH chemical thing of like dose and duration. We're looking to lower the dose as much as possible but I don't think anybody could claim that they would walk out of a building, even if they did uh, two or three rounds of this cleaning regimen, if you will, and guarantee that there's not at least one, let's call it a non-viable virus or cell in that building. So I think some, where I've seen some people with confusion is there's not really a set number. We're right back to the book where there's, there's not a set number that says if you have only a hundred cells of this virus per whatever unit of measurement, that you have nothing to worry about. What we're looking for is just more orders of reduction and you're using multiple means of doing that, whether it's ATP testing or eventually it's gonna be some sort of culture plate for bacteria. Maybe eventually COVID will be put on plates in some manner or fashion that where it can be tested for reduction or efficacy. But it's really a new, we're, we're in the infancy stage of all this. And I've had people reach out to me asking, what are you doing? I'm sitting here looking at you, Bob and Gail going, you know, we're kind of still learning. Yeah, the, the uh, minimum uh, infective dose, which is a uh, public health term, and, and, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's a number of books on this for a number of common um, pandemic viruses. Um, typically, it can be as low as one and as high as 10 and somewhere even higher than that. Um, but we really don't know the minimum infective dose for this particular virus yet. Right. However, if one looks at it from a... Uh, public health spread um, viewpoint um, and the efficacy of social distancing, it certainly appears that the minimum effective dose is in the single digits. So uh, someone walks into another one's, um, <laughs> this is actually kind of a funny thing here because it, it works right now. Um, but if somebody walks into someone's cough zone or their sneeze zone, and right. let's just say there are 10 COVID-19 viable viruses in the air, are, are you, you're telling me that there's still a potential chance. I understand we're not holding you to it, the chance of getting it. But if that number was 100 versus 10, right. they'd have more of a chance, an order of magnitude higher chance of getting that virus just by the absolutely. simple numbers. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Right. Um, and, and there is some health data that um, kind of begs this question in that we know there uh, are a number of uh, asymptomatic people that are virus spreaders. Mm, yes. uh, and then on the other hand, if we look at healthcare workers in the hospital, even, even given the fact that they're very young, they come down with it and in some cases they die. Well, clearly the, 
the dose that the healthcare worker got in the hospital would be orders of magnitude higher than a person might uh, be exposed to within the exterior environment or from other people. Absolutely. So, so that clearly says that it's likely that a lot of the asymptomatic people um, got, if you will, a, a COVID vaccine dose and their body recognized it very early and was, was able to deal with it and, even though they were spreaders. On the other hand, if your body gets swamped with a huge dose up front, your body can't handle it. Right. And, and that is, again, indicative of something that's got a very small uh, infective dose. So, but you, you're, you're, you're comment about uh, the environment being free of COVID-19. Uh, Actually, yeah, I guess it's right. novel coronavirus, yeah. COV2. COVID is actually the name of the disease, right. so we probably should call it novel coronavirus. Right. The, that question has come up over the years where, where people want a contract saying that their environment is going to be mold-free after it's done. And I'm going, no, there right. isn't anything like that. Not on the earth. Uh, or even in space. Yeah, or, yeah, right, even in space. And, Another and, interesting topic, by the way, that we could have on another time. Uh, I know what you're referring to. Keep going. <laughs> um, so we go, no, we, we're going to get uh, the mold concentration or bacteria concentration down to a level consistent with normal fungal ecology. And, you know, they throw, their, they throw the term out, normal fungal ecology out there. And that is a well-researched area. And, right. and we have uh, some of the data on that in our, our books. And, you know, if you're going to be writing a spec and say, yes, we're going to clean it up to normal fungal ecology, you should be throwing out some of those numbers. But I see people saying, yes, we're going to make you a mold-free environment. I'm yeah. going, no. Yes. Yes. And now <laughs> you have somebody who tells their friend, who tells three friends, who tells another three friends that they had a mold-free environment until an attorney finds out. And it just, it's just horrible. Well, um, a lot more comforting to be able to say to somebody, these um, the, the levels in your home are below what the World Health Organization says is acceptable right i mean it's not what i think this is we're talking the world health organization says blah 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 so it's, it's a lot more comforting for us to be able to say that and the person receiving it as well absolutely absolutely um one of the chapters i found um really interesting too that was helpful it, it, it kind of just helped validate some of the conflicts that i had with how do i treat a client differently from another client um you always want everybody wants to buy the lexus a version of yes. the test, but until they hear the price. Um, and then it's a matter of how hard you push the value of the service. And that goes right back to where's the guidance. Chapter five, uh, post-remediation verification levels. Um, wonder if you could just talk to the audience for a few minutes about kind of high level, what the point of these different levels were and how it can help the IEP in the field. Well, we, we wrote that chapter um, with the perspective that there are some remediation projects you can do that are, are fairly simple and straightforward because the conditions that exist in that building uh, are not conducive to mold amplification. And that's, those are the, the visual inspection and, and visual inspection with documentation. Um, and then yeah, we- an example. Um, like a garage. Well, a garage or a- basically a building that is constructed of inorganic material. It's a concrete block building or a concrete block garage or a steel stud building uh, 
with um, dense glass on it rather than paper. So the, the, the materials that are in there, mold simply doesn't grow on them um, within the conditions on this planet. Uh, so in those cases, you, you clean it up, visually clean, uh, and, and you can write some documentation, this is what I did, and that's and good enough. Levels, yeah. Yeah, and, and yeah, you check your relative humidity, the moisture levels in the surfaces. Right. Once we get beyond those things that, that, that uh, don't support microbial amplification, now we're dealing with surfaces that mold clearly can grow on, uh, or bacteria can grow on, and we need to have some uh, level of insurance that we actually did a good job. And that's where you start getting into uh, testing of the surfaces uh, to make sure they are actually clean and disinfected. Right, where it's not just visual anymore now we're, or, or even real-time measurements. We're looking for numerical evidence. And it's not different levels of cleanliness. We want the same level of cleanliness in all of the, the different levels. Well said. But it's, it's the amount of verification. That's right, to, va to validate that finding. Right. Yeah. So it's the assurance level. That's where the different <laughs> levels of testing come in to make sure that you cleaned it properly. Yeah. What level of uh, assurance do you want for this right. particular right. Uh, conclusion? Right. right. Um, and you know, if you're uh, in a hospital and you're cleaning up, uh, let's say the, the patient waiting room area, um, that's one thing. But if you now are in the ICU uh, or, the, or the OR, you really have to have some proof that you actually clean those areas. Right. And, and we've been involved in projects like that. And, yeah, I'm, you know, a clean room or an OR or a sterile drug, drug filling uh, operation or uh, implantable medical device, same thing. You have to follow the standard industry practices and protocols for assuring that those environments do not have significant levels of potentially infectious organisms. And, and that's what sterilization and disinfection or high level disinfection it's an order of magnitude reduction of a test organism right um, and uh, there there are standard test organisms for doing that but all of these uh, epa disinfectants um, they're they're basically tested to to uh, get a two two order of magnitude reduction within the test organism or 99 percent reduction. But it certainly isn't 10 to the 6th reduction. It's not sterilization. It's not even high level de disinfection, which is 10 to the minus 5. Right. This is 10 to the minus 2. So yeah, we're getting 99% of it, but we aren't getting 99.99% of it. That's which, which, which in fairness, Bob, was why, and this is a great discussion, that's why I was talking about that whole concept of, um, you know, 10 versus 100, because admittedly, we don't look at um, this virus as, oh, well, it's like normal fungal ecology. You have it floating around in, in, in ample supply outside. But mm -hmm. by the same token, um, I, I think there's got to be a reality check to, to say, yeah, there's all these proactive things we're doing. We're doing the social distancing. We're obviously trying to wash our hands. A lot, all of this is actually old news to a lot of any, everybody uh, that, are, that are listening. But you're, you're not going to solve, I don't know that you're going to solve world peace with wiping down your surfaces the way that you've described, which obviously I agree with, 
and, and, and have some guarantee that you're not going to have an exposure. It's about reducing the potential for your exposure. And it's right. also about not freaking out at every turn. We just are dealing with a re, a, the reality of the world that we're living in right now. And you do the best you can to social distance, keep um, to, to flatten the curve. Everyone heard that term now. You yeah. do your best to keep the, the environment as clean as possible, but not to the point where you're going to get a divorce with your spouse. Uh, yeah. And then you just live your life. Um, I, 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 this is, you, like you said, this is not sterilization. This is just, this is cleaning and doing a really good job. Heck, I'd say a lot of homes need this regardless of the virus in question. Yeah, I think the social distancing is so important because what we find that this particular uh, novel coronavirus is in some ways a perfect storm. Right. A lot of times if you have a very you know, virulent uh, organism, it, in many cases, the person who gets infected becomes uh, ill very quickly and gets kind of pulled out of the you know the the, the community and the local the, environment yeah right but with this particular um covid uh illness a lot of people again are asymptomatic they it's they're somewhat highly infectious and they're not they're not taken out of the the system early enough because they're walking around asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic and that is, again, the perfect storm that's making this such a difficult uh, item to control. So the social distancing, I think, is really going to save us. That's the thing that, that's the pivot point. And, and chapter seven, you talk about how clean is clean. I, I, again, just a shameless plug for the book because it is rich and it kind of covers these concepts as how do you even establish what's clean? How do you, how do you develop a hypothesis of, of right. saying what you're going into, what your expectations are? Um, what about the, the, the one that intimidates me the most chapter eight um you know I, I i will be the first to admit um i don't think any one of well except for maybe a hospital job i did many years back i don't think any of my jobs were statistically significant uh we're, we're using a 90 percent confidence level 10 percent margin of error um i i would argue that what i have done a really good job is stating it as such it's limited it's not this this is why we're doing it. it's judgmental sampling and i'm not saying that to be proud or that it's a convenient issue. The problem is, is that unless I'm willing to charge $500 to do a statistically significant test, let's say there's two containments in an average home that's worth $200,000, right. people are not going to pay for that. End of story. Um, I have no idea what it even means. Yeah, well, right, well, that too. So, so here we are with the question is, is what can you offer? The, uh, this chapter to me is probably, I say it's intimidating, probably was the most valuable. I have the most you know, marks on, on, that, on that chapter because it, it's so important to understand so that you can at least educate your client, if nothing else. What, could you, what are the pearls that you want to tell the audience to take away from this? What are you hoping that they're going to learn in reality about well, statistical yeah, let sampling? Let me give you a, a little bit of background uh, on this particular chapter. Um, way back in the uh, mid-1970s, uh, after... The United States finally uh, was the last country in the world to have occupational safety and health standards. There was a lot of chemical exposure testing going on and to, to test whether you complied with the OSHA standards. And uh, people are going, well, okay, so how many, stand how many tests do you need to take? And so NIOSH uh, did some research and developed um, Statistical techniques for small set samplings, which is what you do when you do industrial hygiene. Because uh, you don't test everybody and you don't take tests that go on and on and on. You take a few of them. 
So that's where this data came from. In many respects, what we're doing when we're testing for mold and bacteria, or in some, some cases in the future, we'll be testing for viruses, um, you're doing small set sampling. And what are the statistics for doing small set sampling? And we put that in here, and in the conclusion of going through all of this, this machinations of mathematics was the minimum number of samples you got to do is three. Um, and and uh, if you're doing a little better, you do six. So what we do, we do uh, three uh, total spore and three uh, culture bowl, and that's six samples. So whatever we, we gain from all that information, it's statistically significant information. That's indoor. That's, yeah, and then you got to do an outdoor control. But we're not saying, okay, if you're going to go do a building, you got to do a thousand samples. You don't. Um, given the, the ge geometric standard deviation of what we know about mold concentrations within the atmosphere, and this again is, is well documented in literature, we know that when we're dealing with mold and bacteria, that if we do half a dozen samples, we're good. Right. And, and that's what the point of this chapter was. And I don't think a lot of people grasp that um, because, you know, they, you, know you have, have these insurance companies that we want you to do PRV, one sample in, one sample out, and say whether the building passes. And say goodbye. And we right. just yeah. Next. no. <laughs> and and you know, I, I have a problem with that. Is who does the insurance industry think they are asking someone to sign off on something based upon bad science? And 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 instead of our industry and our professionals going no you're wrong, I will not do this, there are people who will do it. And, and what they sign off on is absolutely meaningless. Right, so very, little very little data uh, and even less because of how it's sold. I mean, uh, to the audience, uh, you know, what, what, what Bob and Gail are, are talking about in this chapter, I mean, it is well documented. I'm, I'm holding up a section on one of the graphs that he's referring to that kind of shows some of these, you know, number of samples and gives you this kind of confidence level. The other thing I love about this chapter is that you, you're able to play around a little bit. Um, you say you're in a situation where number of samples uh, are limited due to budget constraints or something um, that you offset that with your own testing criteria. Well, maybe then it needs to be 20% of the pass fail uh, criteria versus 50% or 60%. Um, and I've been able to take good advantage uh, of that particular issue, which again helps the protects the client, protects me because I'm very I'm very strict when it comes to my test. That's why <laughs> it's not going to surprise you. A lot of mold remediation companies don't like to use me because they know how strict I am. Because I'm not just a simple pass person. You know, give me my money and I'll pass you. It's not that. So I'm, you're doing a job. So it's a the the narration that you put in chapter eight is is probably the if there was one chapter. Uh, the IEP needs to read uh, for the sake of the client and their own understanding, it's this, because what it'll do is it'll open up, it'll be one of those light bulb moments where like, oh man, I need to change a lot of things in what I'm doing or at least change what I'm writing in my report because what I'm writing in the report is not what I'm technically giving these people um, for the money. Another, another issue that kind of ties into that is the issue of if you're doing it under, <laughs> under negative pressure, should you test, do your final testing with the NAMS on or the NAMS off? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's a very debatable issue. But one of the things that Bob kind of dodged a bullet on this one is to say, if you are going to test with the NAMS on, you have to have much more stringent criteria. Yeah. 
than when the NAMs are off. So that helps to, to somewhat alleviate that, that issue. Yeah, there's a, there, you're right. That I'm glad you brought that up, Gail, because that particular topic is an important one that you hear a lot of people talking about. And I'm actually, I, I think it boils down to, again, the methodology. What's the hypothesis? If we're, I've, I've, I've struggled with this thing of active versus passive sampling. Um, and this idea that in, in, if we're trying to look for a source, like an assessment, I think it makes a total sense that you would leave these any sort of scrubbing or purification equipment off because you don't want to mask a problem that might exist and then you get you know the false negative uh, concept. Uh, in a clearance, what I struggle with is you, you're paying this company a lot of money uh, to clean the environment. And that's what, not necessarily uh, while being used under negative air, but if it's just in scrub mode and, this, and, the, and the air filtration device is up and running, um, they're scrubbing the air um, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. By the way, you're paying for that. Uh, you've already been charged that as a client. I think the issue you run into is, well, then fine. If you want to have a stricter cr uh, criteria to pass or fail it, be fair. Don't stick your pump or your sample you know, <laughs> within the laminar flow stream of the scrubber and, and then amaze the client with passing results when they had no clue that that was likely going to happen under that condition. Find the areas of low pressure, find the areas uh, where there's a dead spot, sample worst case conditions and still hold that stricter criteria. I personally struggle with that, Gail, which is why I bring it up. Another thing too is, is let's say the contractor is there, the remediation contractor is cleaning up what he was told was um, contaminated. Okay. And, and then he says, I want it to be tested when the NAMs are on to show that I cleaned those areas that I was asked to clean. Okay, so they do. They pass the clearance testing, and he feels vindicated. Then let's say we we take everything down, and, and it's back to to the normal occupancy level of the building and, and airflow. Okay. And then you do some testing, and you find oh the levels are are up. You know that that's because of some other source. Right. It's not the fact that he didn't do his job right. Right. I can see where the contractor would want to do it with the names on to show that he did what he was asked to do. Right, Gail. So it's a convert. So it's a point. This thing really what involves is trust because as long as no one's taking advantage of anybody, and that's really the issue is people worry about that, is right. that that makes sense what you just said. It's we're just trying to be reasonable for both sides. You didn't hire that mold remediation company using this example to gut the entire house. You didn't right. have, you, did, you said I wanted you to deal with the kitchen sink cabinet that had a leak underneath it. It's if they have a crawl space underneath their home yes. and there's a known mold problem. Um, the, the company are, 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 is going to have to use certain engineering controls and processes to protect their scope of work, which obviously isn't the perfect solution, but it's the most realistic one because unless you're going to hand them a, a, a blank check, right. you can't hold them responsible for something that is outside of their scope. And this is the part I keep on. Not, I don't struggle with too many people on, but I've had some really good debates with known people in the industry, people you know. And, right. it's, it, and I think that there's not a struggle to disagree. The, 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 the problem is there's just not a perfect process that's cheap enough for every homeowner to afford. Right. And also, if you look at the bioaerosols book, which is another yeah. one of our Bibles, right. it says that after remediation, the space should be suitable for reoccupancy. Right. Now, if I have a plastic bubble and, an, and a scrubber running, as an IEP, I can't come in, test that space, and then say, once everything is torn down, it's going to be suitable for reoccupancy. No, you can only IEP. test to the question, which is, did right. the comp remediation company do a good job cleaning their containment area? 
Yeah, yeah. So that's where I think another conflict is, is that everybody's looking out for what is in their best interest. Amen. And it's, it, as you said, there's no one perfect formula. Right. And, that, and, with that, and, and to finish that example, Gail, just real quick, I think what could have been, uh, this is all quarterback hindsight, right, is that that IEP said, say, well, then we need to do two rounds of testing. The first round is going to focus on the remediator's work. The second round test your actual question, which is, is this environment um, ready right. for reoccupancy? And that's exactly what we do for like in a hospital environment, right? In the ICU environment. Number one, we make sure the remediation contractor didn't leave stuff floating around because then if you do take the containment down, you're going to contaminate the space. Yeah. And then we do testing when it's um, back to normal, normal airflow. So we right. do both of those. We feel that's highly justifiable in the high risk environments. Well, let me uh, just diverge here for a second sure. to uh, the COVID. 19 question yeah we've had that posed by a lot of people should i be air scrubbing when decontaminating a covid 19 positive environment um and that unfortunately is a tough question to answer right now the general size of the uh the covid uh, virus is uh, 120 uh, nanometers right and that's kind of below the size of a standard HEPA filter. And uh, it, it's been assumed for many years that uh, HEPA filters will capture uh, the smaller stuff. Uh, and unfortunately, the science has not validated that. And in fact, more of the recent science saying, no, it's, that just doesn't happen. Um, With the same level of effect. I mean, not that Bob knows anything about, uh, you know, uh, filter performance. I'm holding up a book that he also created. Um, uh, but would you agree that certainly it's not 99%? Um, I know there's, there's upside down bell curves that show certain limit, you know, certain performance criteria of what would be a true actual HEPA filter with that actual rating. Um, that being said, it's not like it doesn't capture any. It's just a question of, is it 20%? Is it 50%? Right. And is that good? If that's better than not running anything. Uh, like say someone has a, a, we'll say some off-brand portable HEPA filter unit in their home. The idea of running it is that, yeah, maybe it'll lower the total particle load in the home. Maybe, yes. maybe the virus is attached on the back of a larger particle and thus will be right. captured. But to claim that it's going to scrub with 99.97% efficiency is flat out wrong. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I asked that question to you, Bob, because I know you're way more qualified in this field. Have you seen our book five? Yeah, he was just holding it up. Yeah. Okay. This one right here? So, um, yeah, we, we do recommend air scrubbing with the caveat that um, don't tell the client it's 99.97% effective against uh, viral particles. Because right. unless you test it with a... Uh, Condensation. Condensation particle counter, um, you can't make that claim. <clears throat> now, there's a, there's a public uh, publication. And I've, I've been working uh, with the National Institute of Health on the issue of uh, NAM performance now for over five years. And we have a couple publications out, and we're actually working on the third one right now. <clears throat> and the third one is absolutely timely for this subject area because we were comparing the nanoparticle efficacy of HEPA filters um, compared to the standard aerosol test. 
And uh, half the time, uh, these supposed HEPA filters really were not that effective against nanoparticles. Wow. Um, and and we'll, we'll be publishing that sometime in the near future. But <clears throat> as a perspective, this is, this is um, not totally new information. Uh, the Department of Energy uh, does a lot of research with nanoparticles at, at uh, Fermi and Argonne and Lawrence Livermore and a lot of other places around the country. And, and I have a lot of friends in, in, the, in that group and they have known for years that if you're doing nanoparticle research, you need to be validating your HEPA filters using a condensation particle count. So it's, it's not new information. It, granted, it hasn't been published widely, but the people who deal with this stuff really do know this needs to be done. Um, and our industry has been woefully slow at buying into testing their NAMs, which is not a good thing. And AFDs, all of uh, Yeah, and um, we're kind of in a situation now where that could come back and haunt us. So, well, okay. what you got, and, and, and not to get into a lengthy debate with you, because uh, I agree with you 100%, but kind of understandable why it is where it's at in terms of the industry and the lack of ability to check things in their equipment. You, you got a lack of, uh, again, two things. Number one, a lack of a mold police. And, and two, for the more innocent, although maybe gullible and ignorant, you have <laughs> mold remediation companies out there doing the work, thinking they're doing great testing because they had an IEP come out there and do one spore trap sample that said they passed. That's all they know. To them, a pass is a pass is a pass is a pass. Right. Absolutely. And that's a big problem. That's why the science needs to be brought to the attention, which you guys have done an amazing job. I continue to, to thank you guys for this because it's one of those things where a lot of people don't know it and they, they, they do need to uh, get this information. They need to get it on their shelves. Um, yeah, just, just don't get involved in a legal case against where we're involved because we'll lose. Note, note, note taken, guys. Keep that in mind. Oh, Bob and Gail, next. Um, question for you guys. Um, Wealth of information. I know we could keep on going. Before I close today's uh, talks, uh, any other open remarks that you want to leave for our audience, whether it's COVID-related, related to the book, anything that you think is valuable today? Well, let me just tell you a story about COVID because it's uh, got to play out in the next few weeks. Um, in Washington State, there was a, a choir practice, uh, what, mid-February? Yeah. And you know, we're told uh, coughing, sneezing, blah, 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 aerosolizes particles. Well, it turns out that if you're singing, you actually aerosolize a lot more particles. You don't hear that anywhere. And they all got sick. And I, I don't know if any of them died, but they all got no, sick. No, 45. At least last we heard 45 of the 60 had died. So That's a lot. There was a case last week in... Uh, it had to be at least two weeks ago in, uh, I think it was Arkansas. Again, another choir practice <clears throat> at some Easter thing, and they all came down with COVID again from singing as the exposure. And I wish that, uh, you know, that information would uh, come out more to the public that not only this coughing and sneezing and whatever, but singing or, or even yelling will expel viral particles if you're a carrier yeah. and that's why this whole issue of wearing a mask is so critical not just to protect yourself but 
to stop you from expelling viruses that could impact other people. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's one other interesting perspective. This was a very, very bad flu season. Yes. And, and you, you don't hear about it anymore. But one of the things we are doing as part of this COVID-19 thing is basically stopping the spread of the flu. And I wish someone would come out with some statistics going, okay, so we're controlling COVID-19. Yes, but guess what? We're also controlling the flu. Seasonal flu. The seasonal flu. Because, yeah. you know, you look at the Asian countries and, and, and they've been rightfully critical of, of, of us not wearing masks and other things. They're able to control the flu because it's an accepted cultural thing to wear a mask, particularly in the wintertime. I think in the long term, we need to start looking at that as being acceptable cultural practice in this country. It's, this is the whole thing has been a wake up call, Bob. <laughs> yeah. It's like a reset button's been pressed. Yeah. It's interesting in the Asian countries, they initially said, if you're ill or have symptoms, wear a mask. So then people would see them in, in the crowd and they would kind of, you know, feel like, you know, the leper kind of thing. Right. And they go, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because I don't want to get treated that way. But right. if everybody's wearing a mask, right. again, it's another win-win. So That's I right. really think we need to, you know, get everybody on that same page that it's in all of our best interest. Any ideas, right. uh, you two, on, I mean, how long it's going to play out? And I think that's a loaded question because it's twofold. I don't think it's a matter of if you're going to be exposed. It's more of when. Is that, would that be an accurate yeah, statement? I mean, you, you, again, you, you have to look at uh, the history of pandemics. Um, and the most recent one that uh, a few people are at least familiar with is the 1918 Spanish flu, which actually was the Italian flu is where it started, but they call it the Spanish flu because Spain was the first country to say, hey, this is a pandemic. Right. <laughs> you got to get all the credit, huh? <laughs> yeah. And if you look at all the curves from all the cities all over the world from 1918, the the curves lasted at least 24 weeks, or essentially six months. So what does that mean? It means this is going to be at least a six months adventure. Right. It's either going to be shorter. There's no history claiming it's going to be shorter. You can look at the bubonic plague and you can look at the, the uh, Ebola outbreak in Africa, which we had some friends working on. This is a six-month adventure, guys. Mm -hmm. Not going to be any shorter. Don't, don't lie to the public. Don't mislead the public. This is the facts. Here's what's going on. And if we all practice social distancing and disinfection, we'll all come out of it okay. <clears throat> but this idea, oh, we're going to have uh, church services on um, Easter. Okay, how many people do you want to kill? Right, what, which is morbid, but it's actually probably accurate based off the numbers that we're seeing. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, what about long, just your opinion, qualified or not, um, about you know, again, are we really waiting for a vaccine at the end of the day, at the end of the, this discussion, it, whether it comes out in a year or two, that's what's going to be what ultimately hum, stifles, I should say, minimizes the fear? Or what are your thoughts on that? Well, there are two ways that pandemics end. Um, historically, uh, they end on, on the development of what's called herd immunity, which means 80 to 90 percent of the people have been exposed to the, to the the virus or infectious organism have lived through it and survived, and now they have uh, innate uh, resistance to it. And once you have 80 to 90% of a population that is resistant to a particular infectious organism, then it doesn't spread anymore. Um, 
that, our immune systems build up so and respond that may, accordingly. That may be the worst case scenario where we have to wait for herd immunity develop, to develop. And there is some testing going on in the various uh, EU countries to document that, uh, that herd immunity. And right Telluride, now. and Telluride, Colorado. Yeah. And, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, I think actually I heard about herd immunity. Was there a study done in the 2003 SARS event? And a lot of uh, papers came out because of that. But to the point that in the masses, we build up immunity. It just is. That's the slowest to your point, Bob. That's the slowest yeah. process. Okay. Will, we, will we come out with a vaccine? Uh, certainly the science of developing vaccines has evolved a lot since the first days of polio vaccine. Um, but it's 18 months away or maybe a few months less than that, uh, idealistically. Yeah. And then you have the logistic problem, uh, particularly in this country, is how do you vaccinate 350 million people? Right. It, you know, I remember polio vaccines and the, the use of that. And it took three years to inoculate the, the population in this country oh, back man. in when it was the what, mid 50s. 250 million? Yeah, it was 250 million back then. So Her, herd immunity yeah. sound starting to sound like a better deal. They'll <laughs> probably cross the same timelines of what will happen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Gail, Bob, uh, a couple things. Number one, thank you again for this discussion. I know we could probably go on hours. You guys are such a, a wealth of information, and I'm I'm truly honored. I've been wanting, I've been looking forward to a discussion with you guys for a long time since I first heard about your name and did my own research. Uh, my question, uh, to, absolutely. My question to you is, how? What's the best way for those that are listening that are interested in getting a hold of your uh, books, your literature? What what what's your recommendations so that we can lead them to that site? They're on our website. They are on Amazon. Um, either place they can get the books there. Um, okay. And we have a special. If people buy two of our books, they get a free copy of Mutant Mold in Outer Space. Absolutely. Our now or never, folks. We've got mold on, uh, in, in, uh, on the, in near the ISS. Near in the ISS. Guess what yeah, I'm going to be yeah. watching tonight, guys. Um, oh, I, I can admit to you I haven't watched it yet, but it's not from a lack of interest. It's because I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old that keeps me busy all the time. So. I'm sure. Okay. The content of this show is for informational purposes and represents the sole opinion of the host and its interviewees only. Any reliance on the information provided in this show is done at your own risk. Additional opinions and or research may change our current view of the topics spoken in this show. We do our best to minimize any inaccuracies presented and make legitimate efforts to back all comments with our own field experience, independent literature, or studies that support the topics discussed. This information should not be used to make conclusive decisions regarding your health or exposure. Ultimately, all questions and or concerns regarding your health should be addressed by a qualified physician. Additional exposure concerns and or questions pertaining to the health of your home or building should be addressed by qualified and on-site professionals. Any and all products and services discussed in this show should not be construed as a recommendation, endorsement, or guarantee that their use is appropriate for your situation. In short, we hope this information is of value to you, but please do not act upon it without actual and individual consultation and guidance by professionals who have taken the time and appropriate collection of data to assess your unique situation.